0: If you would please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 31 this morning. And I hope that you'll forgive the scratchiness of my voice. Um, It was all fun yelling at Quest. No bad yelling. They were very well behaved. So it was all a lot of fun yelling like, go, you're doing great. Keep going. So I don't have much of a voice, but please bear with me. So now let us turn our attention to the reading of God's holy an inspired word. To the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me? From the words of my groaning? O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make their mouths they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet You are he who took me from the womb, who made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like like ravening and roaring lions. I am poured out like water, And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot and My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear them. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall bow, shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his name, his righteousness, to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Thank you for your good mercy, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you, we would come and that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up. We pray that the sheep would hear the voice of the good shepherd and that people would be called to repentance. We pray that you would meet with us in a very real and a very special way. We pray, Father, that you would speak, for your servants are listening. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. So there is nothing more frustrating and nothing, uh, maybe nothing more universal than uh, asking for help and getting nothing back but silence. Uh, it really doesn't matter what you need help with or, or what age you are. We all kind of can identify with asking for help and getting nothing back. You know, maybe we've come to the point where we're doing a project and we realize we needed help, so we ask for help, but there's no one to help us. I mean, many times I've been trying to do something and I've called my dad and I need help, but he's got to fix the bathrooms at his house so he can't come help me. He's got stuff to do at his own house so he can't come and help me. Maybe you needed... Uh, Maybe you had to call someone and you were on hold for hours and hours and hours. There is nothing, I don't think, in the world more frustrating than being on hold for like three or four hours. And then you finally get so frustrated that you just hang up and you say, I don't need it anyway. Or maybe you need help with homework. Maybe um, you've realized, I can't do this math problem and I need a lot of help. So you go to mom, you go to dad, and maybe they're busy doing something that's very important for the family, and they say, just give me one one minute. But even as a little child, we feel frustrated. Maybe your loved one has been in the hospital in pain and suffering, and you just want someone to make them feel better, but you can't do anything to fix it. This morning, in this passage, it describes that feeling perfectly. The psalmist begins in verse 1 with this desire for help And receiving none, we're confronted with the question what do we do when God seems like he's silent? How are we supposed to feel? So, when it seems like God is silent, we cry out with past assurance. We look to a forsaken Savior and we hope in his final victory. So, first in this passage, we see that we cry out with past assurance. Look with me at verses 1 through 11. So now we know from the title of this psalm, right there before verse 1, that this is a psalm of David. But it's not only a psalm written by David to make him feel better, but it's something for the people of Israel to sing. He dedicates it to the choir master, and he tells them exactly what tune they're supposed to play. You see, he wants God's word to be written for worship to the people. All the psalms are written for worship for God's people. That's why we sung Psalm 22 earlier in our service. So David particularly writes this psalm for the worship of God's people. Now, we don't know why David wrote this psalm. We don't know what particular circumstances he was in. We don't know when he wrote this psalm. But we do know that it's a time when he feels forsaken by God. Look at verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far off from saving me from the words of my groaning? He believes, he feels like God has abandoned him and he is left alone in the world. He feels like he is forsaken. He's left alone. And David says that God is so far off from the words of his groaning, from saving him. It's not that God is geographically far away from him. That he's standing far off. David seems like, he feels like, he is in these terrible circumstances. And God is doing nothing to help him. That God is not listening. David says in verse 2 that he cries out day in and day out for God to help him. But he doesn't answer. And this is taking a toll on the physical health of David. He can't sleep in verses 14 and 15. He says that he's exhausted. He says that his bones are out of joint, he is emotionally drained, and his mouth is dry from lack of refreshment. Skip down to verses 6 through 8. Not only does David feel like God has abandoned him, but the people around him have seemingly confirmed this as the case. Look at verse 6. He says that he is a worm and not a man, that he's scorned by mankind. This isn't David feeling like he's just not with it that day. He feels like utter and complete garbage. And the people around him aren't helping. They have scorned him, they've despised him. Not only does David feel like he's out there alone without God, but he's gotten no help from the people around him. A couple weeks ago, Mark preached on 2 Samuel chapter 16, and particularly in verses 5 through 8, there's a man named Shimei who is throwing rocks at David, and he's cursing him continuously. And that's just one instance in David's life where he feels forsaken by God. His son has ran him out of the kingdom and this man is throwing rocks at him and cursing him in the name of God. Verse 7 tells us that David is being mocked by the people, that they're walking by him and they're making faces at him, which was a sign of a disgrace. They're shaking their heads at him, you know, saying, that again, that he's worthless. They're holding him in disgust. And then we have the ultimate insult from the people. Look at verse 8. They mockingly say, Well, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. First, look at the name that they use for God. It's the covenant name of God. It's Jehovah. These are God's people. This is the church. The church is telling him, Well, you trust in God. Where is he at? With friends like these, who needs enemies? They're saying, I thought you loved him. God will deliver you. With people like this in his own country, imagine what his enemies said. Instead of building David up, praying for him, seeking to help him in his time of need, they take a chance to mock him to his face and talk ill of his trust in the living God. This adds to the feeling of abandonment that David already is experiencing. You see, if we already feel as though the Lord has abandoned us and God's people treat us so poorly, what are we to think but that we've been totally abandoned by God? But David tempers his experience with what he knows to be true. Look at verse 3. David says that though he feels like God has abandoned him, he knows that God is holy. And he knows that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. David confesses that his present circumstances hasn't changed anything about who God is. God is the Holy One that has promised to be with his people forever. If God is actually holy and he is truly who he says he is, then David can't be truly abandoned by him. Because God promised that he would be with his people. David knows that God sits still enthroned upon the earth That he is in control of all things. Again, in 2 Samuel 16, David confesses that. Right after Shimei curses him, as Mark told us, there's a man that says, "Uh, King, let me go and kill this dead dog. And David says, No. What if God told him to curse me? David confesses that God is in control. And then in verse 4, David tells us how he knows that our present feelings don't somehow mean that God has forgotten us and taken his love away from us. Look at verse 4. He talks about how our, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. When they were in Egypt and they cried out to God for years, for 400 years. Don't you think they might have felt forsaken? When people grew up, lived and died for generations under Pharaohs. Don't you think they might have felt like God wasn't listening? But you see the Hebrew is emphatic here. David is crying out to the holy God enthroned upon the praises of his people that his fathers did. They cried out and the Lord rescued them. They were not put to shame. And David is encouraged by the past faithfulness of God to his people that he has heard of in God's Word. David wasn't there. David didn't see it. He read it in Exodus. He read it in Numbers. That's how David was encouraged. He's encouraged by also his past faithfulness, God's past faithfulness to David. Look at verse 9. He says that the same God that was with his fathers was with him from the womb. As a baby nursing with his mother, God was there for him in, in verse 10. He confesses that God has been with him from his birth, that his parents in faith cast him upon the Lord. You see, David pleads for the same faithfulness that God had for him in his early life and in his people's life to be with him now when he feels forsaken. So in sports, there is this sense of compounded uh, accomplishment. Um, the team may have won the Super Bowl, the World Series, Stanley Cup, NCAA, ACC, so on, SEC, so on and so forth. But it might not have necessarily been the team that's there now. Like, I like the Tar Heels, but they're terrible right now. And so they've won many tournaments. So I can say, yeah, you know, we still got that time when we won that tournament. I like the Braves, but they haven't seen a World Series in a good long while. So I can say, you know, we still got that one in 95. We won it. It might not be the team that's there now, but the Braves won it. In a much greater sense, there is this compounded sense of god's faithfulness to his people you might not have been there when god delivered the people out of egypt but god delivered your people out of egypt because you are god's people see when we are experiencing what the puritans called the dark night of the soul we need the encouragement that god hasn't cast us off completely because we might feel like he has and those times we gain that encouragement in two ways. Remembering how God has helped his people in the past and remembering how God has helped you in the past. My grandfather, who I never met but was a very wise man, he said, "You might not always feel like God is there, but God is always there." It doesn't matter our feelings don't always show the truth. Don't always show the reality. Of God's faithfulness. Beloved do you cry with David. Why have you forsaken me? Maybe you are in. That dark night of the soul. Maybe you're in a pit right now. You've come to the point where you feel like you can't take one more step. Without God being there for you. Being clear and apparent. Consider the past faithfulness. Of God to his people. You have a 66 book list. Of God's faithfulness to his people. You have the stories of God's faithfulness to your parents, to your grandparents, to this church. You have your own past experiences of your life where God has been with you through great trial and affliction. We also have the ultimate showing of God's faithfulness in the Lord Jesus who cried out this psalm, who cried out verse 1, when He was forsaken on the cross for us and for our sins. While you may feel forsaken in this life, you will never truly be forsaken because God forsook the Son on the cross in our place. Find refuge in the cross where Christ was forsaken so that you and I would never be, even when it feels like God is far off. So we see that we cry out with past assurance. And secondly, we look at the forsaken Savior. Look with me at verses 12 through 21. In verse 12, David continues to tell us about his time of trial. He says that he is surrounded by enemies on all sides. First, he describes his enemies as bulls. If you've ever seen a rodeo or people riding bulls, uh, whatever that takes, courage or stupidity, you've seen it and you see that people on bulls are not in great situations. Bulls are very dangerous when you're around them. Secondly, he says that they open their mouths like like a ravenous and roaring lion. You see, David had experience with lions. In 1 Samuel 17, 34, when he's going to fight Goliath, he says, I've struck down the bear and the lion that have taken my sheep. David knows exactly how dangerous a hungry lion is. And he says, that's what my enemies that are around me are like. He says again that this has had a physical effect on him in verse 14. He says he's poured out like water. His bones are all out of joint and that his heart melts like wax before a flame. He says that he's dried up and his tongue sticks to his mouth. He's physically afflicted by these enemies that have encompassed him, that are mocking him. He goes on in verse 16. He says that he is surrounded by dogs. Now, Dogs in ancient ancient Israel are not the cuddly little pets that you and I have. They were uh, these little crumb-munching garbage moochers. And they were unclean animals. And I've seen dogs like this. Uh, when I went to Nicaragua on a mission trip with First ARP in Gastonia, we would go and we would do these service projects. And when we sat down for lunch, these, I kid you not, these little dogs would come up and they would beg for food. And all, the, all the, uh, the youth students were like, oh, they're so cute. But all the Nicaraguans, they would kick at them and get them to go away simply because they were garbage moochers. That's what David is. He's surrounded by scavengers people that want to eat David for lunch. David is physically afflicted, emotionally worn out, and he is being harassed constantly by his enemies. Now, much of what David says can apply to him, but there are many things that David says that have absolutely no application to David at all. Look at verse 16, because we've come to one of those moments. He says, "...they have pierced my hands and my feet." There has been debate about how this should be translated, but the ancient and most trusted translation is what you have in your Bibles. What says, they have pierced my hands and feet. The thing is, David never once in his life had his hands and his feet pierced. Now he went through a lot of stuff, but he was never pierced in his hands and feet. So this has to point to someone greater. Let's look back at verse 1 before we come back to 16. David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus screams this on the cross in Matthew 27, 46. In verses 6 through 8, David says that the people scorn him and they wag their heads at him. They say that he trusts in the Lord. Let him save him. Again, in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 43, the people mock Jesus. They wag their heads at him and they forbade him. quote Psalm 22, 8. David says he is surrounded by a company of evildoers. Jesus was crucified between two criminals and he was surrounded by people that wanted him dead. David says in verse 15 that his tongue has stuck to his mouth. In John 19, 28, Jesus cries out, I thirst on the cross. Christ's bones were not broken on the cross so that verse 17 would be fulfilled. Verse 18 is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 35, when the soldiers cast lots... For Jesus' garments, don't we see this psalm is about Jesus? It's not about David. This psalm is about our Savior. The one who was forsaken by the Father so we never would be. He is considered smitten by God, as Isaiah 53 says. He was truly forsaken by the Father so that we would not feel the utter depths of despair and hell that Jesus felt. So that we would know the blessedness of what it means to be a son and a daughter of the living God. You see, David is a prophet and he cries out in verse 19. For the Lord to be with him, to be near to him, to be his help, to aid him quickly. Look down at verse 21. David says, save me from the mouth of the lion. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. See, David shifts from hoping for salvation to having it. He says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, a wild ox is not a safe thing to be around. Being on his horns is not where I would call a place of salvation. But David does. David says that he has been rescued. Del Ralph Davis puts it this way. It is impossible relief out of hopeless despair. That's what the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is for us hopeless and dying sinners. It is impossible relief out of hopeless despair. In the middle of your sin, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. David says again, in the face of the darkness of Golgotha, there shines an empty tomb, an occupied throne. Jesus died for you, and he was raised for you. Trust in him. Believe into him. One of my favorite parts of movies is when everything go wrong, goes wrong. I know that's a weird thing to say, but when it seems like every, the heroes are, and the main characters are about to meet uh, a, a terrible end, I love that part. Because usually in movies, there is something that happens, something that breaks in and saves the people. One of the, the best examples of it is, uh, is Lord of the Rings. At the end of it, they've destroyed the ring, they're on the mountain, and fire is coming out of the mountain. The lava is coming down, and Sam and Frodo are, are going to die. But out of nowhere, these giant eagles come and save them. That's exactly what the cross is like. It was dark. There was 400 years of silence from God. People felt forsaken. And then out of nowhere... There comes Jesus, on the cross, for our sins, and resurrected, and sitting on the throne of heaven. When all seems lost, Jesus saves us. Have you ever trusted in Christ? Have you ever felt the hope of Christ? Perhaps this morning you have been convicted of the weight of your sins, and you feel like there is no way out. Repent. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Perhaps you are a Christian and you are in a time of hopeless trial or affliction. And you think that nobody knows how you feel. Beloved, Christ was forsaken. He didn't felt forsaken, feel forsaken. He was forsaken by the Father so that you never would be. He knows greater affliction and suffering and trial than we ever will or ever could. Jesus Christ literally felt hell for you and for me. He was forsaken so that we wouldn't be. He has defeated sin, hell, and the grave on our behalf. In the times of trial and the times of affliction, the Lord Jesus promises to be there for you because the Father so loved you that He sent His Son for you. And he will sustain you through all of life. So we see that we cry out with past assurance. We look to a forsaken Savior. And lastly, we, we hope in his final victory. Look with me at verses of 22 through 31. Now the tone again, it shifts in the psalm after verse 21. Look at verse 22. David says that since he's been delivered, he will tell the name of God, the name of God to his brothers and praise him in the congregation. When David is delivered, he is moved to praise God with the people of God. But he's also moved to tell others about the salvation that God has given him. He reminds us that those who fear the Lord, in verse 23, ought to praise Him. Now, the fear of the Lord is not that we are in terror of God, but rather, we love Him with a reverent love that is filled with awe over who the Lord truly is. When get, See, when you see that God is a great and a mighty God... We are right to have a healthy dose of wondrous fear of what he can do. Too often we are cavalier whenever we walk into the presence of God. We forget who he is. But David reminds us in verse 23 that if we have received Christ, we are to stand in awe of him. Why? Well, David answers that in verse 24. He says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard him when he cried to him. You see, God hasn't gone deaf. God hears us when we cry out. Again, when we feel forsaken by the Lord, it's not the case that we actually are. Again, Jesus was forsaken on the cross. His cry wasn't answered by God, so that yours would be, so that mine would be would be as his child. But we should not only be filled with the sense of all, but with obedience. Look at verse 25. He says that he will pay the vows that he has that he owes. Whatever the situation David is in, he has made a vow to God. He has said and he has said in so many words, God, if you will deliver me, I will fulfill this vow. Now it's not like when we're little kids and we say, God, if you give me this, I'll do this. David is making a a solemn vow before before God. He is passionate to carry out his obedience that he promised to God. It's not unlike the vows that we make here in our church. If we're members of this church, then we have made vows. We've stood before the elders and we have confessed Christ. And we have made our vows of membership. We've made vows to be in the lives of the children that were baptized here in our church. And to lead them to Christ. Now, we don't do that because it's some ARP tradition and we think it's pretty cool. But because Christ has delivered us from the horns of our sin and hell and the grave and we promise obedience to him. We do that because we love him. As fathers, I'm not not a father, but I do know that my dad loved it and loves it still when I obey him. Not because I feel like I have to, but because I love him. And in the same way, God wants our obedience, not because we feel like we have to, but because we love Him. Now again, in verse 26, there is a reference to a sacrificial meal where where worshipers are provided for. Those who are afflicted have come to God for aid and they have made a sacrifice. And they will praise the Lord and be satisfied in, in Him. They will live forever because they live in Christ. And then there's another shift. David's been talking about his reaction to the deliverance that God granted him among the people. Verse 27, he says that 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 the rest of the world will see this great salvation. He says that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The salvation of the Lord is not just confined to Israel. Here we have a promise in the Old Testament of what's going to happen in the new, in our own day. The salvation of Christ is going out to all the ends of the earth. All of the families of the earth will be represented. Why? Look at verse 28. Because kingship belongs to the Lord. Because He rules over all the nations. Because the covenant God of Israel is the ruler of all creation. And that we are His people throughout the earth. We here in this room that are Christians are a fulfillment of this verse. As far as I know... We're all Gentiles. None of us in this room are a part of the Jewish people, to my knowledge. But we are a fulfillment of God's promise to send out that salvation to the world. And so as Christians, we must continue to send that out. We must go and we must tell our friends, our family, our children. God says that He will provide for the children, for the coming generations of His people. He says in verse 29 that the one who couldn't keep himself alive will bow before Him. This is ultimately fulfilled in the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns and all those are resurrected resurrected, and they bow before Him. When Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, which says, a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be clothed in white robes and stand before the Lamb, praising Him. That will be fulfilled. That's the great hope that we have. When you feel forsaken, when you feel like no one is there for you, when you feel like the world is winning, remember that they don't win. The Lord wins. That is His final victory. We can hope and we can trust when we are inflicted that the Lord will return and He will turn all things that are wrong to right. Now, again, a universal experience of life is usually is getting a present, it doesn't matter whether that present is for our birthday, whether it's for Christmas, you know, an anniversary, or just because. Most of us, we know what it's like to receive a gift. And when you do, after we have oohed and odd over that gift, we kind of want to tell everyone about it. I remember when I was a kid getting Christmas gifts, we would go from my parents' house to my grandmother's house, and we would take the Christmas gift, whatever our favorite one was, we would take it to our, parent, to our grandparents' house, to my mother's great chagrin, because she was concerned that we were going to lose it with all of our cousins. And usually, that's exactly what happened. But we were very excited, and we wanted everyone to know that we got this present. It should be the same way with our salvation in Christ. We have received a great gift, and we must tell others. The gospel doesn't reach the nations by us hoarding it, but by giving it out to others. So are we giving it out? Are we telling our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers... The people that we go to school with, list goes on. Are we telling them about the gospel? We here that confess Christ are the beneficiaries of someone telling us about Jesus. It doesn't matter if it was your pastor, your parents, your youth pastor, coworker, whoever. Someone shared Christ with us, and so we should give the gospel out. Are we so in love with the risen Lord that we are telling him about, uh, telling others about him? Or is it an inconvenience when the topic comes up? Maybe you don't know how to share Christ. In my experience, it comes with just having a friendship with someone, finding moments in their lives when you can just give them the hope of Christ when they need it. When that person is crying out for something that you have, you can give them the words of eternal life. May God make us more passionate for His gospel. As we leave here this morning, I want to just consider again verses 2 and 21. In verse 2, David cries out, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. In verse 21, David gets an answer. He says, You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. In a most unexpected way, when the darkness was the most heavy, when it was the most thick, Christ has come forth to destroy the works of the devil. And if we trust in him today we can experience that salvation. If you have already trusted in Him, then know that He hears you when you call to Him. He has not gone deaf. If we trust in Him, then we know that every time it seems like He's silent, He is moving to deliver us when we call on Him. So we should tell of His excellent greatness. We should tell of His salvation. And we should go through this life resting in the certainty that He's won a final victory for us. And He will make all things new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.